It should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. This is a last chance saloon. Because if we don't really take the decisions that are vital now, it's going to be almost impossible to catch up. We will end the moratorium on extracting our huge reserves of shale, which could get gas flowing as soon as six months. If unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Zero carbon. East tall. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista Series 4 Fool's Gold. I'm Ian Collins and this is the UK's number one environment-based podcast. If it's green, it's in. Another week of mayhem down there in the capital with our Prime Minister performing a couple of interesting U-turns. We expect nothing less these days. But one of those turns may well turn out to be a very good thing indeed. Let's speak to our man whose brain is melting with excitement at the Westminster shenanigans. He is, of course, the green entrepreneur and environmentalist Dale Vince, morning to you, Dale. And it is yeah. the it's the big Rishi, I am going to cop U-turn. Oh, yeah. And it is big because he's gone from, do you know what, I'm too busy doing domestic stuff to, do you know what, there's nothing more important than the climate crisis and renewable energy. isn't? I mean, that's a transformation, right? Do you think, because I was trying to work this out, I mean, if you wanted to be really generous, you could say, okay, his brain is focused on domestic-based issues, and he's, very, he's up to his eyeballs in Abakai, and there he is trying to crunch the numbers and make things nice for us all. Or he could have been saying, there's a lot of uh, red-faced gammonites in my party, and I need to have a quick nod to them, and saying, F- cop is possibly the best way to do that. Well, that's what happened. In he, he flipped the bird to cop for sure, for political reasons, perhaps or probably. But you know, I think also it, it shows um, something about his nature. I think he is one of these people that really doesn't doesn't get it, doesn't actually get the climate crisis and the need for urgent action. And what he's doing now is just saying the right things and ticking the right boxes, much like Johnson did. But you see, his true nature was his first inclination, which was not to be bothered to go to COP27, only the most important climate crisis meeting yeah. on the f-ing planet once every year. Yeah, And do you know what? I actually think it's somewhere in there, I think Johnson did kind of get it. I just don't think he cared enough or had the political acumen to make that point, I think he probably, underneath it, I think he probably thought, I know it's important, but to be honest, it, it doesn't sell very well and I can't, you know, can't be asked to get into it. Well, I, I think he was a lazy man, actually. I think that's and- exactly the word. I think he was just lazy on this. I think his his wife was probably shouting, you know, you've got to do this shit. And <laughs> he was like, do I, really? Do I have to do that? <laughs> do I have to, yeah. <laughs> and of course, what's interesting is he is actually going. <laughs> yeah, he is actually going, but you got to wonder why, haven't you? Just to upstage Rishi. Well, it does sort of look like that. And then suddenly, as, as if by magic, Rishi Sunak decides to go. Yeah, but he was shamed into it, wasn't he? Uh, you yeah. know, not, not just by people in our country, but by the whole world. World leaders shamed him into it and said, basically, WTF, you know, what's going on if the Prime Minister of Britain isn't coming to COP? Yeah. And um, he had to make an embarrassing U-turn and, and then, you know, kind of double down with his, uh, with his rhetoric yeah. about how important renewable energy is and all that kind of stuff. You know, but he's an insincere man is, yeah. is what I read from that. He'll just say whatever he thinks he needs to say uh, to get by. Yeah. Um, I've got a list here of other people who aren't going to COP27. Let me just bring you this. Uh, let's have a look. Boutros Boutros Ghali isren't going. Noel Edmonds isn't going. Apparently, it's a no-show for Danny Dyer. Dale Fins. Dale Fins is... Dale Fince is on the list. What's going on, Dale? 
Yeah. You're almost yeah. VIP territory over there at the COP summits. Uh, no, I don't think so. But look, for weeks and months, we tried to find a way to get there overland without flying. And there's a, there's a train. It only takes three days. You can get all the way to Turkey across Europe, like the old Orient Express, apparently. Nice. But once you get to Turkey, it becomes really difficult to get to Egypt uh, overland across some pretty, uh, let's say, challenging countries. It was looking really difficult. Then I heard that Coca-Cola was sponsoring COP27, right? I, did, I don't know if you knew that. And I'm like, what? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I think of it now as more like Pop 27. And um, <laughs> it, it kind of, <laughs> you sound like Muttley then. You, I did. There was a very Muttley-esque <laughs> moment, wasn't it? But you're wheeling them out this week, Dale. <laughs> Pop 27. <laughs> I like it. And that was the nail, really, the final nail. I just thought, do you know what? And I'm definitely not going to fly there. I, I can't get my head around the idea of flying to a climate conference to talk about how bad the climate is. I mean, I know we need to talk about it, yeah. but we also need to do something about it as well. Uh, so, uh, I, li- I, I Actually, I'm, I'm more now trying to see the image of you on the Orient Express because that's, that's the next Agatha Christie waiting to happen, cop off on the Orient Express. It's got to happen, surely. <laughs> so Hercule <laughs> Poirot trying to work out who is and who isn't going. <laughs> ah, Mr. Sunak. <laughs> I don't know what accent that was. He's, he's still trying to work out if he is or isn't going, I think. Absolutely. Uh, here's a headline. Europe's climate warning at twice the rate of global average. What do we make of this? Yeah, I find that really interesting, actually, because for a long time, the climate crisis has been a distant thing for us in the West, in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, particularly in Europe. You know, it's been something happening in other parts of the world yeah. and, and something that was also distant in terms of time. You know, we've talked about it coming in the next 50 years, 30 years, that kind of stuff. But last summer, it really came home, the climate crisis, you know, to Europe with floods and wildfires and droughts and super high temperatures and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's happening in front of our own eyes in our own territory. And yet warming at twice the uh, the global rate, uh, Europe, is, is, uh, is a shocker. And that's set to continue as well, according to scientists. And part of the reason is it's a big land mass uh, and uh, the land heats up faster than the ocean. And what's been happening is the jet stream has been splitting over Europe, uh, leaving a gap in the middle yeah. of, uh, of super high temperatures. And uh, this is uh, some kind of positive feedback loop. The hotter Europe gets, the more the jet stream splits, the hotter Europe gets. Uh, so, you know, the climate crisis is, is right here, right now. How is, I mean, if you were coming into this conversation just from the outside thinking, hang on, over the last... 10 years, but certainly over the last five years, there's been, even if it's been woeful, and I know that you've been, you know, hypercritical of our government and governments elsewhere as well on this, but surely in terms of climate initiatives, we've been doing more than we were doing a decade ago. And whether that's looking at, you know, what we do with our homes and how new homes are built, the increase of solar panels, people driving electric. So how have things got worse when clearly there have been inroads? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point, because over the 30 years of the study referenced in this report, Europe has cut its emissions by 30%, which is a big deal. Uh, Sure. It's obviously obviously not enough, and obviously there are countries around the world that aren't doing as much. You know, we've we've seen the effects of 1.1 degrees of uh, temperature rise. That was last summer with its bonkers weather. The economic cost of that was nearly 50 billion pounds, which is a crazy sum of money to just like, you know, spaff up the wall, as Johnson would say. Because for that sum of money, we could get to 100% green electricity on the UK grid. 
and so it'd go a long way to, to greening up Europe as well. So it's like it's like if we don't deal with the climate crisis, it's going to cost us loads of money anyway. You know, yeah. we need to we need to put the money into dealing with it and avoid the economic loss that the climate crisis, as well as the deaths and, and all that kind of stuff that come with it. You know, so it's a bit frustrating because right now at COP26, the world agreed to one and a half degrees of temperature change as the target. Yep. We'd, we'd felt 1.1 and it was extreme and we don't really like it. Uh, right now, the UN says we're on course for 2.5. The pledges of every country in the world will put us on target for 2.5 degrees of temperature rise, which is absolutely just a disaster. And so COP27 is super important that the countries get around the table and say, do you know what? Your plan's not good enough. My plan's not good enough. Nobody's plans are good enough. We need to dial up the, the action on this. Otherwise, well, we're all doomed, actually. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's great that there's been at least an acknowledgement of things by bringing in the aforementioned list I gave, but it, it's so far away from what is needed. And that's the constant reminder with headlines such as this. Yeah. And it's nice that we've got good, clear, simple stats. We tasted 1.1 and it's horrible. We're aiming for 1.5, which will be a lot worse, but we're on target for 2.5, which would be unthinkable. Yeah. You know, it's a very simple story. Here's a question that comes in from Chris on Facebook. Uh, well done on the yellow laces this weekend. There should be no place for gambling in sport. Just explain the story, Dale. Yeah, so this is an initiative from some friends of ours, The Big Step. They're an anti-gambling charity formed by people that have been affected by gambling, uh, whose you know, family members have uh, you know, had problems. You know, people have been losing their houses, uh, suicides, all kinds of really severe problems that gambling causes. So they run this campaign. Uh, their idea was to wear yellow laces for the FA Cup first round. And, um, and we're joining in. We're playing South Shields away. And, you know, I mean, it's a super important thing because gambling is so prevalent in football. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. It's on, if you watch a Premier game, it's on shirts, it's on pitch sideboards. Every commercial break has got gambling adverts in. It's, uh, it's on apps. It's made super easy. It's hyper normalized. Gambling is hyper normalized by football and stuck in front of a lot of vulnerable people. And, you know, it causes tens of thousands of deaths a year, blights families, and they make billions from it. They're making profit from other people's misery. And, you know, the government needs to stop it. It needs to ban gambling advertising in sport. In the same way that you wouldn't allow a cigarette commercial or, a you know. Alcohol. Yeah, alcohol and the like. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, so, some would say, well, you know, hang on, Dale. Look, the, the, these people are paying for huge chunks of the – footballing experience which is an expensive game as you know and you know moderation is surely a good thing so this would be about having more reasonable regulation rather than banning yeah and we went down that path with tobacco didn't we and with alcohol yeah and uh, if you remember back in the day when it was first proposed to ban tobacco advertising in formula one racing uh, the industry there threw the hands up and said it won't work. You know, it's, it's impossible. We'll have no money. Yep. <laughs> but Formula One got past that and it's thriving today, isn't it? So it is possible. True. Football clubs and football organizations may prefer to keep the money and keep the status quo, but we shouldn't allow them. Uh, here's another story. Food companies and governments must come together immediately to change the world's agriculture practices or risk destroying the planet. That's not a headline you want to read. It's not. Well, maybe it is a headline you want to read in one respect, but a disturbing one nonetheless. What I love about this, the quote that you just read out, could have come from any kind of lefty, eco, you know, kind of, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, person. It didn't. It came from some of the biggest food and farming businesses on the planet. Yeah. It and came that- from them, the people that are doing it, right? Mars, McCain, McDonald's, Pepsi, mm. all kinds of people. Well, there is a kind of big change on this. I, I've noticed this where, I, I mean, I know you've got different 
parts of the political spectrum. But uh, when we want to get an MP on the radio to sort of argue a little against some of the climate initiatives, you know, we obviously start by ringing around a load of Tories. It's very hard now to find a Tory who speaks against it. Really? I mean, there's some there, obviously, some of those old boys on the back benches. But most of the new lot will say, well, why would I want to talk against that? And that's a game changer too, right? Because yeah. we, we've yeah. seen fracking was the, the most recent example of that, but we don't, that there isn't the same divide as there once was. No, I think you're right, actually. Even Rhys Mogg came out a couple of weeks ago, didn't he, and said he wasn't a climate sceptic and he wasn't a green energy sceptic either. Well. Even Rhys Mogg. Yeah, as my old nan used to say about Jacob, what a f- quit. That's another story. That was on a good day, right? (laughs) Here's a question from Jamie on LinkedIn. Do you think the bulb deal with Octopus Energy is a fair deal for taxpayers, uh, like the boss of Octopus seems to be saying? Oh, my God, no. So I posted on social media yesterday with my thoughts about that. I mean, it's the most incredible spin in that press release, him saying fair deal for taxpayers for so many reasons. First is they won't even tell us what's being paid only that it's between 100 and 200 million pounds for like one and a half million customers or something. Right. So he says, or, or the article says, this, uh, this is between 33 and 66 pounds per customer, which is a metric used quite often to buy and sell energy companies pre sure. the crisis. Pre the crisis, the price was 200 pounds. Hmm. So this is a bargain basement sale. It might be for 30 quid instead of 200 quid. Yeah, he's going to say it's a good deal, but it is for Octopus. It isn't for the taxpayer. We've, we've copped the bill about 2 billion so far for the rescuer bulb, and he's buying it on the cheap for 100 million quid. Yeah. On top of that, he says, I'm going to share profits with the, uh, with the public. Nice man. Taxpayer. Yeah, nice man. Look at his accounts, right? He's only ever lost money. Look at Bulb's accounts. They've only ever lost money. How do you put one big loss-making company together with another big loss-making company and change that? Because he's a happen. nice man, Dale. That's <laughs> how. It ain't happening. And also, there's no detail on the profit share. All we know is that it's over a period of four years. Four years is not enough. It really should be 10. The whole thing is a fire sale by the government dressed up as some philanthropy by uh, the the, the founder of this big energy company. It's bollocks. Extraordinary. There you go. There's the front page for you right there. It's bollocks. (laughs) Um, Let's talk for a moment about the polluting elite, because there is, um, uh, when it comes to emissions, there is a gap between the top 1% of people and the poorest, according to a new study. Uh, brilliant new study. And this is about Britain. So uh, top 1% of earners in our country earn 170 grand or more. And they emit 26 times more carbon every year than the bottom 30% of earners in our country that earn 21,000 pounds or less. 26 times more. It's incredible. Is that because they're doing more stuff? I mean, they've got more cars, they use aeroplanes more. Is, is, Is it as simple as that? Yeah, that's what the article says. They've got more houses, they fly more, they import expensive luxury goods, they eat more meat and dairy. I mean, they basically have a more affluent lifestyle, right? And we know that carbon comes from that, uh, you know, compared to somebody on 21 grand who doesn't go far from home, lives in a small house, you know, yep. and just doesn't live extravagantly. But the article makes a really good point that we should tax this, right? This 1% of people should not be allowed to emit 26 times more carbon than something close to the average for nothing. Right? Quite, they want to, quite they're a super lot. rich, yeah. they can pay for it. And and, a, and it, it makes the point that if we had a tax on this kind of consumption two decades ago, 
we'd have raised over 120 billion pounds by now, which we could spend insulating the homes of, of people that are less well off. For there example. it is. Here's a cracking story that's come out of Oxfordshire Council. Um, you you might remember a couple of years ago that there was a bit of a hullabaloo. Some people got very upset. Um, I think even Jeremy Clarkson got upset, which is often no bad thing, uh, because they decided to put vegan lunches on their menu. And so there's yeah. been a bit of an inquiry into this. Yeah, um, they went further than that, didn't they? they it's vegan only, right? Yeah, vegan, vegan only, lunches. yes. Yeah. But they've now yeah, voted that's against that's scrapping the vegan lunches. That's right. And, and guess, guess who brought the motion to scrap the vegan lunches? Guess which party? I bet it was, I bet it was the Conservative leader. <laughs> it was. It was. And he said, let's, let's. Oh, there he is. Money. Eddie Reeves. Eddie Reeves. Let's give the money to charity instead, he said, kind of. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how that makes any kind of sense unless he thinks vegan food is, you know, more expensive than the meat and dairy, which it isn't. Um, anyway, he made no sense. He got voted out. And Oxford are still having vegan only food for the councillors when they meet. And I say fair play to them. What if you fancy a bucket of the Colonel's finest chicken, though, for your lunch? Well, tough shit. To I wait suppose. till tea time, innit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't expect the council to provide it. Simple yeah. as that. I, I mean, guess. there's all kinds of things wrong with meat and dairy. I mean, it's driving the climate crisis on the one hand, but it's bad for people as well. You know, yeah. it's, it's irresponsible to feed people that shit. Yeah. Just before we move to a final question, uh, a little point on fracking because we, we started the feature fracking corner uh, with this <laughs> this sound alert. Which meant the ears of the nation prick up because they know we're going to go frack bound with a, a discussion here. Um, and then, of course, they've essentially scrapped it. So that might have ruined our feature, which I'm a bit grumpy about. But um, it's funny, isn't it? When there was the vote in the House of Commons, there was all sorts of allegations of bullying and the like. And they've had an internal investigation and found no evidence of bullying during the vote on fracking. Yeah, apparently. Uh, maybe you should start a campaign to bring fracking back in, you know, just for the fun. Just so we can keep this feature going. For the entertainment, right? Otherwise, yes. we're, all, all we can do now is dance on the grave of fracking, right? That's very true. We are left merely with a happy jig, as distinct from, you know, very angry words. Fracking corner is a cemetery right now. Yeah, it sadly is. But in the nicest way, we, we nod to fracking corner and the ghost of all those that required drilling into the ground of old ladies' took, houses. Right. And all it took was the change of three prime ministers over the summer to go for Got there in the end, though, right? Yeah, there was no fracking, there was fracking. Now there's not fracking. No oh, fracking, what a, no fracking. What a, what a helter-skelter of a ride that was. A, a great point to finish on from Nick on Twitter, because this is quite a wide question, really. He says, what is going on with your political plans, Dale? Because, you know, we've talked about this, you know, on and off over the course of the these series of podcasts as to whether you are going to take the the step or dip your toe into the world of Westminster politics. Yeah, I decided not to be an MP quite a while ago. I think we might have talked about that, or not yeah. to try to be an MP. Obviously, it's not a given, because I didn't think it would be the best use of my time, best suited to my nature, all that kind of stuff. And also, I thought I could make more of an impact by not being an MP and the, and the constraints of that. So uh, yeah. I formed a think tank, the Green Britain Foundation, and what we're going to do is develop uh, policy statistics, which I think are really are really important in this debate. You know, just some actual facts that uh, that uh, you know show the way to go, like the fact that fifty percent of global aviation emissions come from one percent of the population. You know, that kind of stat I think you know points us to where the problems are and what we need to do about it. Uh, we've got some. Uh, we've got a study coming out in a few days. We we took the forty five billion that Liz Truss was going to borrow to give to rich people, and we said, what could we do with that instead? Actually, we could build enough wind and sun to get to 100% green on the grid of Britain. 
which would have enormous uh, economic benefits. And so we've, we've commissioned somebody to tell us what those benefits would be in terms of jobs and GDP growth and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's yeah. stunning. It, the answers are stunning. And, you know, compared to the, the idea that trust had that we'd get some trickle down growth if we gave loads sure. of money to people that already have loads of money. Yeah. Um, it's uh yes, it's a lovely contrast, but also it, the idea is to point the way for the next government, which which has to be a Labour government. We we have no chance if it isn't in in actually pursuing this green agenda to point the way to what needs what needs doing first, and and you know which are the most economic things to do, how to do them, that kind of stuff. So uh, it's all going to be about policy and plans uh, from my point of view, and feeding that into the political debate. Good work. That is it for this episode, Dale. Have a cracking week. Uh, we'll speak in seven days. Nice one. With COP in full flow, right? Indeed, cop, yeah. COP27. Lot, yeah. We've got the eyes and the ears over there in Egypt, so more on that coming in the next episode. Don't forget, of course, you can follow this podcast from your podcast provider so you get each new episode automatically. And do follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash Vince, facebook.com slash Vince, and on Insta and on TikTok too. Zero. Carbon. East off.